Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today, we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This this will be study number 2. And we're going to begin reading from verse 2 through verse 8. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. And I'll stop reading there. Now, um, this is a passage that uh, some people who in, who insist that Jesus had to pay for sin in 33 A.D. like to turn to. And the reason they do is because, as uh, we read in verse 3, it says uh, how that Christ died for are sins according to the scriptures. And then it, it mentions he rose again the third day and was seen of Cephas, the twelve, above five hundred brethren, and uh, James, all the apostles, and then last of all, Paul himself. And that proves, they think, that payment for sin was made at the cross, because Jesus died for our sins. Well, that's not correct. That's not true at all. And in today's study, we're going to lay out seven major proofs that show that Christ died from the foundation of the world, and that's the point in which he made payment for sin. Not at 33 A.D., he manifested what he did um, from the foundation of the world in time, in the year 33 A.D., but he did not make payment. There's no question about that. There, the Bible is clear, and and uh, getting clearer all the time that Christ paid for sin at the foundation of the world. Actually, it's absolutely necessary that Jesus paid for sins at the foundation of the world. There would be no gospel, or would have been, no gospel for the Old Testament saints. There could not have been any salvation for any of them prior to 33 AD, if Jesus did not die for sin until that point. And, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible 
tells us uh, that that this one and that one and and others were saved in the Old Testament again and again. And that would not have been possible unless Christ had already died. And we'll, we'll show that. We'll see that from the Bible. Now, what about this verse, though, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3? How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Well, here on the surface it appears to say what... uh Others are saying it says that Jesus died for sins or paid for sins in 33 A.D. And it it does have 33 A.D. in view because the context shows that. That he rose after three days and and then appeared to all these people. So that's not a question at all. But it's the word for. The word for. In verse 3, Christ died for our sins. This word is also translated as concerning in Romans 9, in Romans 9 verse 27. It says in that verse, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. That is what he was saying had relationship to Israel. Christ died concerning our sins according to the scriptures. Christ entered into the world and made himself manifest and went to the cross to demonstrate what he had done from the foundation of the world, his whole appearance into the world in human flesh was concerning our sins. It was all because of that. And then we have perfect harmony with Everything else the Bible teaches regarding when Christ actually made payment. And there uh, is no such harmony when we look to 33 AD and attempt to say that's the point. That's the time Jesus paid for sins. And we'll, we'll take a look at that. Now here's seven major proofs that uh, all agree with one another, all agree with the Bible's teaching. This is the Bible's teaching. This is what E-Bible Fellowship teaches. We want no connection of any kind with anyone or any website or anything at all that is teaching error that Jesus paid for sin in 33 AD. It's nothing but a false teaching. It is a wrong doctrine that God permitted and allowed all through history. But now we're living in a time when the Bible's been open. The seals are off and God has revealed the truth. It is not a a good thing to go back from a truth that God has graciously opened up to us. It, It is 
um, a dangerous thing, as a matter of fact, to turn back from something like this that is an end-time revelation of God. And, and God himself is the one who opened the scriptures to reveal this as well as other things. And, and especially when there is so much biblical evidence. Now, first, evidence number one, the, the first major proof is the direct statement of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, in verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And you can, you can know when people start changing that, that it's a, it's a direct statement. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God, of course, is referring to Jesus as the Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world and telling us the point of his death when he was slain, the foundation of the world. Individuals are reading that and changing it. They're they're saying, well, God meant, or what it means is uh, he was foreordained to be slain. It doesn't use the word for ordain, or as theologians have said in the past, in principle. Those words are not in the text. They are added by people who do not like the conclusion that the direct statement makes. So they change it to say something that is more in line with what they want to believe. But that isn't permitted. It, it doesn't say for ordain, nor does it say in principle, but it, it very directly says Christ is the Lamb slain from uh, the foundation of the world. Now, secondly, we, we read that the foundation of the world is the point of the finished work of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3, it says, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. And that would be pointing to the Sabbath rest, which always spiritually identified with the work of Christ, he did the work, not us, so we enter into that rest, the work of Christ in saving his people. And so God says, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. When were the works finished? The foundation of the world. Now just think about what God is saying. Works... It's an action. It's that which must be done. You you can't have finished works in principle. That doesn't make sense. A work is that which fulfills the promise of God or fulfills the will of God. It, it must be something done. 
It, and then you have a work. You, you can't have a work that, that is in principle. It, it's a contradiction. The work of Christ in taking upon himself the sins of his people and coming under the wrath of God and dying for those sins and giving up his life and then rising from the dead to justify his people were finished from the foundation of the world. He entered into the world later in time to perform a different set of works, the work of demonstration. And you will have people who point to a couple of verses in the Gospels where where Jesus speaks of doing the, the work of his Father. And then on the cross he says it's finished. Yes, he finished the work of demonstration that he also was commissioned to do, and that work was finished. And God uses that kind of language to confound those that stubbornly want to um, have their own way and continue to insist that Jesus paid for sin in 33 AD. Okay, God always allows the one who wants to run his own way a, a little rope so that they can uh, go the way that they they must. And that's the case with any doctrine. So God places some verses to mislead, misdirect, and get people off course. And that's exactly what has happened with the idea of, of works. But the direct Bible statement, the point of the finished works of Christ concerning paying for sins was the foundation of the world. That's the second major proof. And the third will uh, also stay in Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 9 is that the foundation of the world was the point of the one-time offering for sin. And God tells us that in Hebrews chapter 9, um, verse 25 and 26. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. Now, God's describing the earthly high priest who had to, every year on the Day of Atonement, go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat, and and so forth, and then do it again the next year, and do it again the next year till he died, and then the new high priest would do what he was doing. Exactly. Every every year, various high priests, of course, they they couldn't continue by reason of death. Um, they, they, they had to continually... Offer it was the task of the high priest, whoever he was. Well, then God says in verse 26, For then, now now remember, this is speaking of Jesus. Go back to verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as 
the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered. Now, God's point is, Jesus did not have to do this often. How many times did he have to do it? One time. One time was sufficient. One time the payment was made and the law of God was satisfied and never again, never again is it necessary for Christ to make payment. He was not like an earthly high priest. He was of a superior order, the the order of Melchizedek. He was a superior high priest, eternal God. And Therefore, what the earthly high priest typified and and demonstrated in the offering, the yearly offering, Christ fulfilled when he performed the one-time offering. Now, I'll start again from verse 26. If, If Jesus were like an earthly high priest... For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. The the Greek word translated since is a po, and it's the same word translated as from in Revelation 13.8 and other places. From the foundation of the world. Can you see what God just said? He said it very clearly, actually. And it's only that some don't have ears. Uh, I can't explain it any other way. We we can't um, make anyone understand any teaching of the Bible. You know, it's always amazed me how insistent people are on holding on to the free will doctrine. When, when there's so many verses in the Bible that uh, clearly say, uh, were born, as it does in John 1, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or Jesus says, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you, in John 15, I think. And, and many similar statements, but there's still a couple of other scriptures, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so you can have a discussion with an individual and you show them Romans 9, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, God says. And they will say, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. And, and you show them another verse and then they'll come up with something else. God's not willing that any should perish. Or, or the, there are verses God placed in the Bible to allow people to go the wrong way. He does that with every doctrine, and they refuse to acknowledge. And and how that is, I, I think, uh, maybe in some cases, it, it's just someone who's uh, stubbornly set in their ways and, and, and doesn't even want to look at it, or just willfully wants to continue on in the error. But uh, but often I think it's just they haven't been given eyes to see or ears to hear. 
So you can show them the verse and show them another verse and another verse and they don't see it. They don't hear it. Here, so far, God said Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God said the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In Hebrews 9, he's talking about the one-time offering and comparing it to the numerous offerings of earthly high priests. And then he says of Jesus, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Why that point? If payment was made in 33 AD, you know, Hebrews is written after 33 AD. If payment was made in 33 AD, why didn't God say he must often have suffered from the cross or in, that, that took place uh, recently, or or God could have certainly worded it in such a way that we know 33 A.D. was in view, but he worded it in such a way that we know it's not in view. For then must he often have suffered from the foundation of the world, which which fits with the other scriptures we've looking at, the other major proofs, and this is a third, telling us, declaring that the one-time offering, not necessary even for two offerings to make payment, the one offering that Christ made as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek occurred at the point of the world's foundation. But then, you see, God confuses things with the second part of verse 26. But now... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He uses the word once. And if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear and understand there was one payment for sin at the world's foundation and one demonstration for sin as Christ entered into the world and went to the cross in 33 A.D., then you'll miss it. And the uh, word once in the second part of the verse is referring to the one-time demonstration. Did Jesus do that often? No, he didn't do that often either. He only demonstrated it once. And the word appeared is a translation of 5319 in Strong's Concordance. It's a, a Greek word that means made manifest. He once in the end of the world hath made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And 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 so God puts both of the uh, wonderful, beautiful works of Christ in view, the works finished from the foundation of the world, and his um, call uh, as he uh, came into the world in obedience to the will of the Father to show forth what he had done. But that's the third proof. As God said, um, the point of his original suffering was the foundation of the world and therefore the point of payment. Well, the fourth is that Jesus is declared to be the Son 
through the resurrection of the dead. And we've talked about this a lot, but I'm going to go over it again in Romans chapter 1. It says in verse 3, beginning there, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's a a very full verse. And there's a declaration at the beginning and the completion of the thought at the end and in between there's other things. Let me read it again, just looking at the main point here. And declared to be the Son of God by or through the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. And we'll look at why that is in our in our next proof, uh, because he's the firstborn from the dead, and and that made him the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead, and he he takes upon himself the name Son of God once he rose from the dead. And he, he became this firstborn. And, and so God calls him the son. But the Bible tells us, we don't have time to go there. You can check it out in Hebrews 1, that the son created the worlds. That is, the son of God, Jesus Christ the creator, spoke in the beginning, before anything was in this creation, and brought everything into existence. He is the creator. The son of God is the creator. Yes, okay, you knew that. You know Jesus is God. You know the Bible has told us that he's the creator. Yes, but but hold on and consider. He was declared to be the son through the resurrection of the dead, which means he would not have had the name Son until he first rose from the dead. And then the Bible tells us he created the worlds as the Son. Well, how could that be if he did not die making payment for sin and rising from the dead until 33 A.D.? He... He would have created the world, but how could he be called the Son? And why is it when we read the Gospel accounts, already he's called the Son of God? He's already identified as the Son before he goes to the cross, before he dies, before he resurrects. To be declared the Son... You see the problem. The problem that, well, we don't have. The Bible Fellowship doesn't have this problem. God's people who understand what God is teaching concerning the point of the atoning work of Christ don't have this problem. The, the problem lies with those that are attempting to force the issue 
with 33 AD and they're demanding that has to be the time when Jesus paid for sin. Okay, well, why is he called the Son when he created the world? And, and you see, it doesn't fit that. But does it fit when we understand, well, Christ actually died for sin at the foundation of the world and rose at the foundation of the world to be declared the Son. That's before the world began. And then, as the Son of God, via or through the resurrection of the dead that he has already experienced, Jesus creates the world. Yes, that fits, doesn't it? That harmonizes with Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. Christ um, must often have suffered from the foundation of the world. He rises and is declared to be the Son from the foundation of the world, which enables him to create the worlds as the Son, to create the universe, and to enter into the world later in the course of history, thousands of years after the world's creation. He is born 7 B.C., in the 11,000th and 6th year of earth's history, and then already is the Son, because he long, long before, long before it already died and made payment and rose from the dead. We have harmony. We have cohesiveness. Everything fits, which it does not when we um, think that Christ died for sin in 33 A.D., Now, the fifth major proof, the fifth proof is that God insists Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, and in verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's an important point that God wants everyone to know. Christ is first. He gets the preeminence. He is the first. And then there, there's something especially God wants us to know. Christ was first at in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And that, that word preeminence means to be the first. To be the first. That's very important. Christ gets the preeminence. And we might wonder, well, what's so important about when Christ died for sin? Uh, foundation of the world or 33 AD isn't the important thing that simply he died. Of course, it's important he died, 
but God's the one who is making an issue of when that death took place or when the payment for sin took place. And it's God who is insisting and wants us to know. And it was very important to God uh, so that he kept it hidden all through history until the time of the end when he unveiled his Bible and his word and revealed a great many important truths and anything God unveiled at the time of the end is extremely important. And one reason this is so important is that it gives Christ the preeminence and and the glory of being the first, the firstborn from the dead. Well, doesn't uh, Jesus dying and resurrecting in 33 A.D. do the same? No, no, because... And, and we don't have to think uh, of a thousand cases. Uh, if we can show there was one person, one individual that would have died and resurrected before Christ in 33 AD, he would no longer, Jesus, would no longer have the preeminence. He would no longer be the first born from the dead, would he? And... Uh, you know, God says in uh, Romans chapter 8, in verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that is language indicating God is likening the resurrection of the brethren who would be the elect to the same resurrection of Christ. That is, they're, they're on the same level. We're talking about the same thing. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the brethren are similar. As a matter of fact, God tells us and, and encourages us because Christ rose from the dead, we can have hope of rising from the dead. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. Now let's ask the question, was Moses Christ's brethren? Was Moses one of the brethren mentioned in in that verse in Romans 8.29? Yes, of course. Moses is is definitely a child of God. Moses uh, was a saved individual. Yes. And when does the Bible say that Moses resurrected? Well, we we know that he died at the age of 120 in the year 1407 B.C. as Israel was about to enter into the Promised Land after their 40-year wilderness sojourn. And... Then, though, we see uh, in the gospel account that Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. And it says in Matthew 17 and um, 
verse 2, and he, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light, and that's speaking of Christ. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him, then answered Peter, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And it goes on, but it's a record, a historical record, that is revealing Moses was resurrected. He is seen in a glorified body along with Elias and and this would be Elijah and remember Elijah was translated and never died but Moses died Moses physically died and was buried and and yet there he is on the mount of transfiguration with Christ now Satan took issue with this And perhaps um, Satan's point is the other scripture that says Jesus must be the firstborn from the dead. We're not sure exactly. But in the the epistle of Jude, it says in verse 9, and and Michael here is another name for Christ. Yet Michael, the archangel or chief messenger, when contending with the devil, he disputed... About the body of Moses. Satan was disputing with Christ about the body of Moses. And why? Why? Because Moses was resurrected. And isn't Jesus the firstborn from the dead? And Jesus had not yet gone to the cross? Perhaps is what Satan was saying. And yet, God didn't have any of that. God does everything lawfully. God does everything in order. And Moses is not the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't the first to resurrect from the dead and receive a new spiritual body. Christ was. Oh, but... People who think Jesus died and resurrected in 33 AD can't say that. No, Moses did die, if that were the case, and and receive his resurrected body before Jesus in 33 AD, because we just read Matthew 17, and it would be some time before Christ would go to the cross. But the people of God who understand what God is indicating and declaring and saying again and again and again, Christ died and made payment for sin from the foundation of the world and rose. He resurrected at that point, declared to be the son, the first born from the dead of many brethren. And now God can... Um, go about his business over the course of history. And if he wants to um, give Moses uh, an early resurrection for his own purposes, he can do that. And Moses, is it still is 
in keeping with what God has said, Christ is the firstborn. Moses lived uh, uh, thousands of years after the creation, and, and so Christ rose before the foundation of the world in eternity past. And so, of course, he's the firstborn from the dead. That is the fifth major proof, and every one of them harmonizes. Every one of them, there's there's no forcing anything. They all fit wonderfully, and they help us understand other Bible verses and other scriptures that otherwise would not be understandable. Now, the sixth major proof, and all these are major. They're not like minor things. Each one is a major proof. This is something that God wants known, and and so uh, He's uh, He's showing how all these things fit together. In Hebrews chapter nine, it says, and and this would be before leading up to those final verses, some of which we read earlier, in Hebrews nine, um, verse twenty through twenty two saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. See how how careful God is with his words. He doesn't say all things are purged with blood, but almost, almost. Why? Well, remember that um, we read in Mark 3, we're not going to turn there, but all manner of sins and blasphemies that men commit can be forgiven except for the sin of blaspheming the Holy Ghost. So, there is no forgiveness, it says there in Mark 3. And, and, and so God is ever so carefully perfect with every jot and tittle every statement in the bible and and here he he makes reference to the fact that almost all things that as all manner of filthy deeds and thoughts and iniquities are cleansed away by the blood of christ except that god has made that uh, exception well almost all things are by the law Purge with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without shedding of blood is no remission. And uh, what does that mean? Well, without first the blood of Christ being shed for sin, and Jesus making payment for sin, there can be no remission of sins. And, and that would mean someone could not be pardoned or have their sins forgiven. They could not be saved without the shedding of blood first. Christ gets the preeminence. There must be, first of all, shedding of blood. Oh, the, here is another area where individuals... Uh, uh, really, uh, I'm, I'm surprised they're, they've said this, 
But they've said Jesus shed no blood at the foundation of the world. He could not have shed blood. It, it had to happen in 33 AD. And it's surprising because you would think that God's people that have been following along to this point would understand the spiritual nature of the Bible by now. And when the Bible speaks of shedding blood, the life is in the blood. And and so if Christ died for sin as he did from the foundation of the world, he shed his blood. He gave his life is all that means. And even they're inconsistent with applying their their own ideas. They said, well, Christ could not have shed blood at the foundation of the world because he shed no actual blood, literal blood. And they say it had to happen in 33 AD. But in 33 AD, when Christ entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, is when he began to suffer and, according to them, make payment. Yet, as as we read that he was drinking of the cup and and uh, was heavily burdened and and so forth, uh, it was all spiritual. There was no actual, literal, physical blood shed. The Bible says great drops of sweat fell from him as blood, but that's not literal blood. That's that's a, a likeness God is making to indicate he was giving his life, and Christ did die giving his life a second time, not to make payment, but to demonstrate. And it just shows the great love of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ that that he did this with no need to make payment. He did this in order to show forth the things that he had already accomplished from the foundation of the world. So they're in error concerning blood literally must be shed in order for Christ to make payment. They, they're they not understanding that it just means the giving of life. And Christ gave his life making payment from the foundation of the world and therefore at that point shed his blood providing now remission of sin for the Old Testament saints. Because first, there there was the shedding of Christ's blood. First, he gave his life. Now there can be forgiveness of sins. Their sins can be remitted. But again, the difficulty comes. And this always happens when you're going the wrong way. It it, it always occurs you you hit um, not bumps in the road, you hit obstacles, you hit walls. You begin to develop contradictions because the Bible will not permit the thing that you're teaching. It will not allow the direction that you're going. And, and of course, uh, what the natural-minded man, and I'm hoping people, many people, have just been confused and are not natural-minded, because to be natural-minded is to be unsafe, but the natural-minded man continues in the path, just 
goes around the obstacles and and redirects and brings up another scripture well it says over here and and they don't deal head on with the great obstacle the the great wall that God has just placed directly in front of them and so they continue down the erroneous path well um I think that it is true that some are uh, true believers and, and yet they are confused because there's some out there that are carelessly looking at the Bible on this matter. Uh, well, so again, the teaching of the Bible that Christ died at the foundation of the world allows for this scripture in Hebrews to be in, in accord, in harmony. Yes, okay, there's shedding of blood before the world began. So the blood to cover over sins is available for uh, Noah. It's available for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and David and, and all the saints of old. They, they can have their sins remitted. Well, let, let's move on. We're getting short on time to the seventh major proof. And I would like to spend a lot of time on this. I don't know. Maybe we'll come back to this in our next study because this is um, something important and interesting. Uh, we find it also in Hebrews chapter 9. Let's let's go back to verse 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean uh, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after Men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, I would really uh, recommend reading that passage a couple of times, slowly, and, and considering what God is saying, especially verses 16 and 17. Uh, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament 
is of force. After men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. And now we can see from these statements why it's important which point in time or before time did Christ die. Because the testament of God, the will of God, and in his will he has named heirs, heirs that are in Christ. We, we receive the eternal inheritance, but you can't receive that eternal inheritance. You can't even be an heir until you're adopted into the family of God, until you've become saved. You cannot receive what is said in the will. The, the testament is the gospel, it, it is the word of God that has gone forth. Now, let, let's uh, say it this way. It cannot be said that the testator died in principle. That is, that God wrote the will, his testament, and declared he would die in the future. Why can that not be said? And and that's what uh, individuals are saying when when they... They read Foundation of the World. They're saying, oh, it's all just foreordination. God was was declaring what he would do in the future. Well, that cannot be said because if he would die in the future, in time, in the year 33 AD, then the testament of God would not be in force. It would have no strength, no power, because the testator lived. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not have been dead. And it's a necessity, God said in verse 16, that there be the death of the testator in order to empower the testament, the will. Now, uh, go back to verse 15 of Hebrews 9. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. And the Greek word translated as testament is also translated as covenant in the New Testament several times. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament or covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, we we just saw there, there's two testaments mentioned in that verse, or two covenants. Two covenants. Does that sound familiar? Uh, yeah, it, it does sound familiar, because in Galatians chapter 4, God speaks of two Covenants, the same word, two testaments. And then he speaks of Hagar and Sarah and says these things are an allegory. They are the two covenants. One covenant from Sinai, the other covenant that relates to the promise. And 
well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but this this is important. So we'll carry over a discussion of this seventh and final proof, uh, Lord willing, into our next study in 1 Corinthians 15. And I, I would uh, suggest that you look up the word testament and covenant in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And what you're going to find, I'll, I'll spoil it, but we'll still go over it. What you're going to find is the covenant, the testament of God, was in force in the Old Testament with Noah. God repeats again and again the covenant he made with Noah, with Abraham and his seed. With all of the fathers, God dealt with them according to his testament. And God also makes mention of having made or testated the testament. That is, he indicates he died already to put into effect the testament, the will so that they could receive grace and remission of sins and and uh and experience salvation long before Christ entered into the world and went to the cross in time thanks for joining us for eBible fellowship sunday bible study for more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.